going to be a wonderful time. All right, let's look at our scripture, uh, which is 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 22, and I'm actually going to read all the way through 28. Uh, this is the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to be starting a new sermon series. I don't know if you know this or not, but this is my 10th year and one day anniversary at Redeemer. So uh, it was August, August 1st, 2010 that I started at Redeemer, and I think it's August 2nd, 2020. Uh, so it's been 10 years, and, and Liel and I were calculating up how many sermons that I've preached, and it's probably 460 sermons uh, that I've preached. Uh, so hopefully you've got the message uh, by now. But what I wanted to do is, is do a little, for the next five weeks, a greatest hits, uh, meaning out of those 450 sermons, I want to pick five. And so uh, if there is a particular sermon that's very much impacted you, challenged you, encouraged you spiritually, I want to know because I, I haven't selected what those five are going to be. Uh, but I'm going to pick five out of those 450 and uh, I want to get imp uh, feedback from you. So email me, let me know. And uh, that's what our series is going to be, Greatest uh, Hits at Redeemer. All right, let's look at our scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 uh, through 28, actually. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen and amen. Well, I want to start off with a question that is on everyone's mind that you constantly think about, which is how much can you bench press? I know this is the subject of conversation among women when they get together for a lunch or a tea. Uh, how much can you bench press? Actually, no one ever thinks about such a thing unless you're a teenager or uh, a guy in college. And uh, I remember, at least in my day, the, uh, you know, the, the, the benchmark was to be able to bench your weight. If you can bench your weight, you know, okay, you're all right. Well, I continue to weigh more and more with each passing day, so I refuse to take the test. Now, you may be asking the question, why am I asking this question, how much can you bench press? Well, it was because recently I, I had dinner, our family had dinner with one of uh, Daniel's teachers at Norfolk Christian, and I found that in this prime, this man could bench 500 pounds. Now, a, a, a upright piano weighs about 500 pounds. So I, I thought about this image of uh, a piano on a bar, if you will, and was astounded by that number because it seems impossible that someone could bench that amount of weight. 
Well, we're not really talking about bench pressing, but we are talking about the Christian life. And when you read this passage, it seems to me that some of the things that are being commanded to do here are well nigh impossible. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. And Paul is reading out these admonitions in such a matter-of-fact way. And I pause to ask the question to myself, how am I able to do these impossible things? Well, I think as I read through this passage, I see one verse that enables the rest. One verse that gives us the power to soar above the mediocrity of our human self-same lives and to live the impossible life. And that is to pray without ceasing. You see, prayer is the means by which we unite with an unseen power. Christianity is more than a list of do's and don'ts, isn't it? Because we have the list of how we are to live. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that it's impossible to live this out on our own strength. No, we need the strength of another. And so Christianity is a union with the living God and his son, Jesus Christ, who made the universe and upholds it by his righteous right hand. Prayer is the means by which we call upon Christ's power to live out the Christian life. Indeed, prayer makes the impossible possible. So we're going to talk about prayer uh, in this uh, next uh, uh, period of time that we have. We're going to cover three specific points. Number one, that the Christian life requires prayer. Without prayer, we can't do it. We can't live out this life. The Christian life is not difficult. The Christian life is impossible. But it's possible with Jesus Christ. Number two, that prayer powers the Christian life. It's prayer that gives energy and vitality and power to living out our Christian life. And finally, number three, prayer is a response. It's a response to what God is doing and saying in our life. For prayer is the means by which we call upon Christ's power to live out the Christian life. Well, let's begin with our first point, that the Christian life requires prayer. We're at the end of the uh, letter here in 1 Thessalonians, and Paul will often do this, where he'll he'll list a bunch of commands at the end, almost staccato-like, where he's trying to cover the rest of the stuff, and he's running out of ink. And so he, he makes this long list of admonitions, and you're trying to make heads or tails of what, is there any organization to it? And there, there is some organization. Um, verses 12 and 13, Paul is talking about how we are to live in relationship to our leaders. In verses 14 through 15, he's speaking about how we are to live in relationship to each other. And then finally, in verses 16 through 22, it's how we are to live in relationship to God and His Holy Spirit. And then 23 on is sort of the final uh, ending. So let's look at the first part, how we are to live in relationship to our leaders. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. He's speaking about the elders, the leaders in the church. The church has been formed. Elders have been appointed. And these elders, and what do these elders do? What's their function? Well, first, they labor among you. They're laboring among you, not physically, but spiritually. 
Though the word labor, it's actually the, a term that's used for workmen. They're like workmen, spiritual workmen among you who are laboring. And the Greek word here, to labor to the point of exhaustion. In other words, they have their shoulder to the wheel working with this congregation to help them grow in Christ, to challenge, to encourage them. These elders, they are laboring among you and they're over you in the Lord. In other words, they're in authority, but the authority that's been given to them is uh, by Christ Jesus himself. And their authority extends no further than that of Jesus Christ. Their authority, they are over you in the Lord. And what do these uh, elders do as they labor among you, over you in the Lord? They admonish you. The word admonish means literally to place in one's mind. They are instructing the people in the faith. They are exhorting them. They are encouraging them to grow in Christ, even reproving them from time to time when they need a rebuke. Almost like a shepherd with the sheep helping to direct them uh, in the way to go in the Christian life. And how are they and we commanded to treat them? It says to respect them and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Notice those words, respect and esteem in love. Why? Because of the hard work that they're doing. Because of their motives among you, what they're trying to do to help you grow in their faith. Now I'm happy to say that you have wonderful elders among you who fit this description of laboring among you, who are over you in the Lord and who are admonishing you. I'm speaking of our elders, Barry Durham, Ken Dodal, Alex Kassir. Uh, the pastor myself is a little bit shaky, but at least we'll give him some cred because, you know, he's with those guys. But, you know, it's very countercultural, isn't it, right now, to do these things with your leadership, to respect them and esteem them highly in love. Everything we're seeing from the TV, everything we're seeing from the media, everything we're seeing from our culture says to criticize and to suspect and to tear down. And it can be challenging to respect and esteem them because they are human, aren't they? And they make mistakes. And yet the Bible says to do this, to be utterly different than what our culture is saying. The Christian life, what we have to give to the world is something utterly different than the world. It's not a new and improved version of the world. It's utterly different from the world. And when we do this, as challenging, as hard as it may be, something happens. Look at verse 13, to be at peace among yourselves. The Bible is full of command and promise. And what you will discover is that as you are this way with your leaders, as you respect them and esteem them highly, you will find that there is peace in the congregation, that there is peace among the relationships of the people in the pews. But if there's a criticism and a disregarding of leadership, how can there be peace with one another? Indeed, there will not be peace. And so we are called for this high and holy task to swim against the culture, to respect and esteem our leaders. Well, how about with one another? Verse 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. 
Be patient with them all. This is how we are to love one another in the pews, side by side, not with our elders, but with each other. It says that we're supposed to admonish the idle. The word idle means disorderly, means irresponsible. See, in that congregation, there were some fringe elements of people who had wandered off and were, were, were causing trouble, if you will, were doing the wrong thing. In 2 Thessalonians 3.11, the second letter to the Thessalonians, we hear this. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. In other words, they're, they're going around and rather than living out the Christian life, they're stirring up trouble, stirring up factions. 1 Timothy 3.5.13 also talks about idlers. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. We are called to admonish these people, these brothers and sisters. We may know them in our church. We may be them in the church. And we all go through phases where maybe our speech and our conduct are counterproductive. We're called to admonish the idle. But we're also called to encourage the faint-hearted. These are brothers and sisters in this particular church who are losing heart. They're faint in their heart. Whether it's because of the persecution they're experiencing in the church or whether it's because of the death of loved ones and the questions that they have regarding uh, the, the state of their souls, these are the issues plaguing the Thessalonians. We are to encourage them, which means to console, to comfort to exercise a gentle influence by our words, to cheer them. This is the call to the Christian to encourage those among us who are faint-hearted, to help the weak, either those with weak consciences, those who are being rattled by the ongoing persecution, or those anxious about the day of the Lord. Our own issues we deal with, uh, we certainly have plenty in our own Life, But we are called to help the weak, which means to assist each other in supplying what may be needed. Finally, the catch-all, be patient with them all. We need patience with one another, don't we? Whenever you get a bunch of sinners in a room, there's going to be problems. And yet the calling of our life is to be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, verse 15 but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Notice it says, it doesn't say, don't do evil for evil, but rather see that no one repays evil for evil. In other words, we are our brother's keeper, that we are to get involved with each other's lives in the right way, not as idlers and busybodies, but rather to help Grease the wheels, if you will, of Christian love and affection. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek good, seek to do good to one another. That our goal, our privilege, our responsibility is to always seek to do good to one another. Doesn't mean we'll always be able to do it, but that is our uh, responsibility toward one another. 
And it finishes with the statement, and to everyone. It's not only speaking about our relationships in the church, but it's speaking about our relationships outside of the church. Speaking about the person that you work with in the, the cubicle right across from yours. Speaking about your, your relatives, your friends, your neighbors. To always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Because we're not called to isolate in our particular little enclave, but to reach outside of our four walls to do good not only here, but to everyone around us. We just came back from a vacation and uh, had a wonderful time. We went down to Bald Head Island, and uh, that's off the coast of Wilmington, uh, Cape Fear, right there on the south, south, North Carolina. And they have something uh, on Bald Head. It's called Turtle Time. You're on turtle time, and turtle time basically means slow down. In fact, they don't even have, allow cars on the island. There are only golf carts on the island. It's called turtle time because this is uh, one of the major sites that turtles use to lay their eggs. And if you know anything about turtles, uh, whenever there's a problem, they're, they're not the fleetest of foot turtles are. And so their one defense is basically that they bring their arms and they bring their head into their shell and they trust in their shell to be able to protect them. It's easy to be a turtle Christian in these times, is it not? Isn't it? So much going around in our world. So much unrest, so much hatred, so much... After watching the news or, or reading news on the internet, I, I want to take a shower sometimes. Just the, the anger and the misunderstanding. And there's a part of me that just wants to bring my arms in and bring my head in and just shut off to be a turtle Christian. But this scripture is calling us to do the impossible, to love the unlovable, to care for those who aren't like us, to bring love in the place of hatred. Jesus said, you are the light of the world, right? You are the salt of the earth. Jesus told the disciples, you go and feed the 5,000, and I will be with you. And so this passage is telling us that we are called to make a difference in the world. I think that's why I'm excited about this partnership with Christian Way uh, Church to be a part in the world, to extend our hands outside of our shell. For each one of those backpacks to be a communication of love to a community that many have forgotten, who do not have the means that we have. To come alongside brothers and sisters who aren't like us, who may be hurting, who may need encouragement, just like we need encouragement from them. God is calling us to be more than simply a church that gathers together in Sunday and then goes out among our own business. This is an impossible task. And so we need a God who does the impossible. That brings me to my second point, how prayer empowers the Christian life. Because the Bible continues on and it only gets harder, right? Rejoice always is the command. 
pray without ceasing. Prayer makes the impossible possible because prayer is power. Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty three, I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, this is a very easy passage to manipulate to our own ends, right? We've discovered the magic bullet by which we can accomplish anything we want, but it's not saying that. It's saying God will give you the power to do whatever it is that he's calling you to do and to be. But you need to pray. And you need to trust that God has the power to do so. So what does that mean, to pray without ceasing? I mean, does it mean that literally we're supposed to be praying constantly in an active conversation with God? Well, I'm preaching right now. How can I be doing two things at once? No, there's a difference between what something says and what something means. And this is what I think it means to pray without ceasing. Firstly, I believe it means that there is a spirit and an attitude of dependence that should permeate all that we do. This is the spirit and the very essence of prayer. It's a spirit and attitude of dependence. See, what is it that stops us from praying? It's our pride, isn't it? I can do it myself, God. No thanks. And we live independent lives just like Adam and Eve back in the garden who said, thanks but no thanks, God. I've got this covered. But prayer is like John the Baptist who said, I must become less and he must become greater. Life, in a way, is prayer, is it not? Living out my life in a spirit and an attitude of dependence as I go about my day. Sometimes conversing specifically and, and audibly and intentionally, but with that attitude and spirit in my heart of dependence. I think that's what it means firstly. Second, I think praying without ceasing means praying repeatedly and often. This word uh, without ceasing, adialeptos, is also used in Romans 1.9 where Paul says, For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of my son, his son is my witness as to how often, how unceasingly I make mention of you. Paul is speaking about how often he's praying for the church at Rome. And he's saying that unceasingly I'm making mention of you. In other words, I'm praying all the time for you guys. I'm walking along, going about my business, and as I'm doing that, several times a day, I'm, I, you're, you're on my mind, church at Rome. I'm praying unceasingly for you. In other words, our default mental state should be like Tevier and Fiddler on the Roof saying, oh God, oh God, oh God. A Godward gaze, if you will, as we make mention to God with our prayers. Thirdly, praying without ceasing means not giving up on prayer. It means a spirit and attitude of dependence. It means praying repeatedly and often. And it means not giving up on prayer. 
It means never coming to a point in our life where we cease to pray at all. Where we abandon the God of hope and we say there's no use. There's no use praying. No, it means continuing on praying. Not ceasing, not stopping, even when it seems like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. See, prayer really does reveal what we believe about God, doesn't it? We believe that God is the answer to our heart's cry. We will go to him. If we believe that God has the power to move mountains in our lives, we will go to him. But if our prayer life is weak and we don't pray at all, what it communicates really is that God is uh, he's an addition to our life, but he's really not the source of it. He's not the strength of it. So to sum up, to pray without ceasing means never giving up looking to him for help and coming to him repeatedly during the day and often, making the default mental state of our life a Godward longing. The passage continues on with, I think, a form of prayer, not only praying without ceasing, but giving thanks in all circumstances. You know, thanksgiving is a form of prayer. That's why they're almost always included with one another, right? Prayer and thanksgiving. Because in order to give thanks, you have to thank someone, right? You go to somebody's house for dinner and it was a wonderful dinner and what, so what do you say? You turn to them and you thank them. Thank you for feeding me. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. That's exactly what's going on here. It's personal. And we are to give thanks in all circumstances. In other words, what the Bible is saying is there's always a reason to give thanks. God is always working in my life. He's always doing good. He's always doing the best for us, even amidst the hard things, even amidst the trials. Does not Romans 5.3 say, not only so, but we also can rejoice in our sufferings? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. See, this is why we can rejoice always because we know that as we look at God, even amidst the hardest and most difficult thing, God is using it for our best, and we will come forth as gold in the end. And in the end, we will understand why we had to go through those challenging things. When we pray without ceasing, it gives us power to give thanksgiving, and it gives us power to rejoice. But prayer only happens in a spirit of dependence. My first part of yesterday was not a particularly good day. I found myself very much down and just wanting to crumble in a ball and uh, basically get in my bed and go to sleep, uh, which is not a great thing after having been on a vacation, right? You're supposed to be up. You're supposed to be feeling good. Well, what happened? Well, what happened was I forgot to take my medicine. See, I have a condition. The spec scans that have been done on my brain show a decrease in blood flow to my prefrontal cortex 
my temporal lobes and my cerebellum. The result of that is chemically, I'm off. And the result of that is often the moody blues. I come by it honest. It's depression. And it runs in my family and has uh, been my friend for many, many years. See, to counter it, I take medication. And it does the trick pretty much. What is the cause of this particular malady? Why my brain doesn't work the way it's supposed to? Well, it's either some head trauma that I had when I was younger, or genetics, or both. But the reality is it's part of the fall. And to be honest, I hate taking the medication. I hate being dependent on it. In the same way that I'm dependent on that medication, we were made to be dependent on prayer. But the difference is, I'm dependent on the medication because of the fall. But we're dependent on prayer not because of the fall, but because that is the way we were made. We were made with a God-shaped hole in our heart. We were made with a telephone wired to our Creator that functions both ways. It's the pride in me with the medication that doesn't like it. And it's the pride in me that doesn't like having to depend on God for anything. But to pray is to acknowledge that I need him. That I need him in my life. That I need his power to live out the life that God is calling me to. So how do we strengthen our prayer life? How do we begin to pray more and more without ceasing? Let me give you uh, three or four particular tips I think that will help. In real life, some dis discipline in regular prayer times, having regular prayer times, helps to keep the spontaneity alive. In other words, if you want to have a vital hour-by-hour -hour spontaneous walk with God, you must also have a disciplined regular time with God. Think of Daniel uh, in the Bible who three times a day would go to his room and would open his windows and would pray to God. That habit of forcing himself to go and to be still before God and to know that he is God. You know that had to make a difference in his life when he was challenged uh, in all those particular situations, whether being spending time in that lion's den. Well, he had already greased the skids through that disciplined time with the Lord. If you want to have a spontaneous time with the Lord, a, a relationship with the Lord, then one of the things that you're going to have to do is to develop that disciplined habit of showing up. The scripture says it doesn't need to be flashy and shiny and you're not going to be known because of your many words. But rather, go and close the door to your prayer closet and pray to your father who is in secret and he who sees it, it says, will reward you. Heaven knows how to put a proper price on its goods. If you want to know the creator of the universe intimately, you need to show up. But that's what it's all about, showing up. So developing a disciplined time with the Lord. Number two, praying for the want to. Verse Psalm 119.36 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to gain. The psalmist is praying, Incline my heart to your testimonies. In other words, God, make me want to. 
I want you to make me want to. It's going to God and acknowledging to him, the truth of the matter is, I want so many other things than you. All of my heart right now is saying, go watch that television program. Go read that internet article. Go do this and this. And, and to, be to be honest with you, God, that's what I want to go do. I need you to open my eyes, to incline my heart to your testimonies and not to gain. And you know what? When you pray that, God will answer that prayer. That's your heart's desire. Because the scriptures say, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. But only God can incline my heart to the Lord, right? Pray for the one to. Number three, pray for revelation. Psalm 119.18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. In other words, God, I'm coming and this scripture that I'm reading in this passage seems like sawdust. And you don't seem anywhere and I don't feel like I know anything of the world the spiritual world, the unseen world. So open my eyes. Pray for revelation. And then finally pray for satisfaction. Psalm 90, 14. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. In other words, God, be my satisfaction. Oh, God, be my heart's desire. The scriptures say, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So pray that God would be your delight. And you know what? He is not too proud. He will answer that prayer. Even though we have demonstrated that we will have just about anything else other than him. He is not too proud. Prayer is the means by which we call upon Christ's power to live out the Christian life. And so how we live with one another, how we respect our leaders, how we change the world begins in our private time of seeking the Lord and growing closer and closer to him. There is no other way for we have nothing to offer aside from that which he gives us. Which brings me to my final point that prayer is a response Verse 19 says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. I've told this story before about the captain of a ship who looked into the night and saw a faint light in the distance. And without hesitation, the captain told a signalman to send the message. Adjust your course 10 degrees south. Instantly, a return message came back. Adjust your course 10 degrees north. The captain was angry because his command had been ignored. So he sent a second message. Adjust your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. Soon another message was received. Adjust your course 10 degrees north. I am seaman third class Jones. Immediately, the captain sent a third message, knowing the fear it would arouse. Adjust your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. And then the reply came. Adjust your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. <laughs> the captain adjusted his course. 
See, the truth of the matter, my friends, is that God is always speaking. He's always signaling. He is the lighthouse. But all too often, our frequencies are not attuned to what God is saying. And so we must attune our frequencies to God. It says, do not despise prophecies. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, back at that particular time, God was building his church and building the canon of Scripture. We know that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, right? But you build a foundation once. Those kind of prophecies, the way that God speaks now through prophecy is in the way that you're hearing right now as the word is exposited to you. The Bible is closed. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given us his great and precious promises that we might participate in the divine nature. So it says, when it says, do not despise prophecies, what it means is do not listen to God's word, either when you read it or when you hear it spoken and basically say, that's for other people. I'm not going to take that seriously in my life. God is always speaking to you throughout the day. And when you decide to hear his word and obey it, you are changing your course to 10 degrees north into the harbor of safety. But when we, dis when we do not, it's like throwing cold water on the Holy Spirit. No. Sometimes we cannot hear him. And when those times happen, look to the cross. I look up to the sky sometimes waiting for God to speak and I don't hear him. But the cross isn't something that's up in the sky, my friends, is it? It's something that occurred on a garbage heap outside of Jerusalem. It's down here with us. Blood and sweat and tears. The cross is always speaking, saying, I love you. I've not forgotten you. I'll never abandon you. Keep listening and trust me. Hold on to my words, and we will live this impossible life together. Prayer is the means by which we call upon Christ's power to live out the Christian life. And it's prayer that makes the impossible possible. Can you bench 500 pounds? Doubt it. And I can't either. But he is in me and I am in him. And together God wants to do something amazing in my life and in this church's life. If only we'll listen and obey. For prayer is power. And right now, God is signaling. Let's pray. Oh, Father, give us eyes to see. Give us a want to, to pursue your face. Give us satisfaction in you and you alone so that we will st stop dallying around with these trinkets and toys of the world 
that we would never settle for anything less than the good stuff of you. God, you're calling us into a season of living the impossible life, of loving one another, of doing good to those around us, of proclaiming the gospel in an unbelieving world. Let us respond to the challenge, for you are faithful and you're always speaking. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.